afternoon. This is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here. I'm packing a Colt King Cobra. That's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left-hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the plane. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you Boy Scouts, but you know life, you know life. You know I'm totally off script right now. Hi, Newside listeners. It's Sam Carliner, and I'm really excited to be joined by Tim Shorrock, a foreign policy journalist who I really like. Uh, he writes for The Nation and Responsible Statecraft, uh, focuses a lot on East Asia policy, also author of the book Spies for Hire. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, we, as I told you in our emails, we, we were trying to cover every sort of main region of what foreign policy may look like under Biden. And this is the first deep dive, at least, that we're doing on uh, East Asia on the show. Uh, and I want to get into the specifics, uh, you know, policy with Korea, Japan, China. But I want to start with something that our listeners are familiar with. Uh, Antony Blinken. Uh, I was inspired to reach out to you specifically because um, you tweeted, I believe, uh, that Blinken could turn out to be as bad as Kissinger. And I, I know you were very active during the Vietnam War movement, anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, so I was hoping you could talk to our listeners who may not be as concerned about Blinken as to some of what you're seeing, some of what you know about him, and why you're concerned about policy he is and may continue to pursue uh, in East Asia? Um, well, strangely enough, you know, Kissinger was the one who engineered Nixon's opening to China. So it's, uh, but, you know, he also engineered this heinous US bombing campaign of. Cambodia and Laos and carried on the Vietnam War and lied to the American people about Vietnam and, you know, committed other crime, war crimes after that. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the people are beginning to recognize that the kind of foreign policy that Blinken under Biden is espousing is, you know, I, I saw an article posted in Foreign Policy this morning saying, you know, it's like re, re, bringing back the Truman Doctrine, you know, which was, you know, Truman in 1947 said, you know, the U.S. would support any movement, any, any, any rebellion against communist, communist governments or communist forces anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of the things that really triggered the, the Cold War. And, um, and I think, you know, Blinken and Biden are doing the same thing. And you know, starting another uh, Cold War, re bringing back the Cold War to to East Asia, and specifically, you know, aimed against China. And uh, you know, the policies they're following, are, I think, are are very dangerous, and they're being provocative. They always accuse North Korea, of course, of being provocative and testing its missiles, like they just 
you know, have been this past week. But, you know, uh, sailing, uh, you know, war U.S. warships through the Straits of Taiwan, uh, as U.S. warships have been doing since, you know, the late 1940s, since 1949. And, you know, well, actually, the Korean War was when sparked uh, Truman to, you know, send the Seventh Fleet between Taiwan and China. So, you know, this is, this is you know, not a great policy and it's very dangerous policy. And uh, that's what I was, that's what I'm concerned about. And I think, you know, you know, as then now, you know, the, the, the boogeyman, the boogie person is, is China. And, uh, you know, despite, uh, you know, I mean, there are obviously issues around China and, and, you know, anyone can, it's easy to criticize China for, it's it's you know totalitarian police state and and the way it monitors citizens and some of its actions, but you know China like North Korea has a right to exist and has a right to defend itself and has a right to uh, you know have a have a presence in the region, which is where it is, uh, you know and and so by by coming off as this you know you know, especially, you know, Blinken with his, with his uh, arrogance toward, you know, every, every country. It's like, you know, you, you basically, he had, to put, he had to put out a statement the other day, you know, saying, you know, well, we won't demand that South Korea and other countries, you know, join this new alliance called the Quad with Japan, Australia, and India. But, but you know, that, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to force, you know, other countries to, you know, to join this and, you know, in the big Cold War, you know, alliance that they want to they want to create against China, and uh, you know that that that's a that's a recipe uh, for conflict and 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 even armed conflict, which could be really really you know dangerous to that part at any time. So I'm yeah. I'm pretty concerned about this. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bring up the Quad. Uh, we're seeing a lot more of that uh, in in the news, at least those of us who follow foreign policy. And one thing I think is important to point out, we don't need to get too specifics into it, is that it's kind of hard to uh, claim that the reason you're opposing China is human rights when one of your key allies in opposing China is uh, Narendra Modi. I think he's arguably uh, one of the maybe less respectful of uh, human rights leaders. Um, he's a fascist. He's, yeah. led, he, he, he's led fascist attacks and supported them when before he became prime minister against Muslim people in India. I mean, he, he, the guy has all the makings of a you know totalitarian fascist, and you know, there's you know, India is not a source of uh, stability in any kind of way right now. This you know massive farmer strike and other kinds of actions against him, um, but you know that's that's who the U.S. is you know choosing to ally with, along with extremely right wing, which I call LDP Japan, Japan led by this reactionary liberal democratic party, which is uh, the most, you know, uh, pro-American political party on earth. Uh, lavishly, slavishly pro-American. They basically follow, do, do any, whatever the U.S. says, you know, they'll follow along. And uh, so they're, you know, uh, you know, Biden's made it very clear that that's, you know, that that quad is the sort of core of his, of his alliance, what he considers the alliance structure in East Asia. Yeah, I wanna get into Japan because one thing that I really wish was getting a lot more attention right now 
uh, is the effort uh, in Okinawa. I know a lot of the indigenous community there is protesting this uh, US military base construction. You've been covering that, I know, since, I mean, my first encounter was 2014, uh, and I'm sure it's been going on. Uh, you're, I know it's been, uh, the Okinawa situation has been going on for uh, decades. Um, we don't need to get maybe into all the history, but for people who aren't too familiar with the situation, can you give a bit of an overview of uh, the protest movement now, what's driving it, and sort of the background of why more people should pay attention to it, and Japan's role also. Right. Well, first of all, you know, the U.S. has its largest military presence overseas in Japan. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's about, uh, I don't know, 60, 70,000 personnel, and Japan uh, of, of, of Okinawa is home to 70%, 70% of the U.S. bases in Japan. And these are major bases. Uh, and, and at, you know, World War II, Okinawa was the bloodiest battle of the, the, of the Pacific War. Terrible, terrible, terrible war. You know, thousands and thousands were killed. Uh, and it was like considered to be the first step of the what would be the invasion of Japan. So they you know, took Okinawa. Okinawa had been uh, had been an independent kingdom for hundreds of years. Had good relations with China and you know Southeast Asia and other countries in the in the region. Japan uh, kind of complex history, but in the in the late 1800s, uh, Japan basically seized Okinawa and, and, and took it as and incorporated it into Japan. And uh, after the war, uh, after World War II, after the US you know, invaded and took over Okinawa, um, in the early post-war years, they, they began building bases there. And then during, during the uh, Korean War, which you know, became a really hot war in 1950, uh, they greatly expanded these bases. And so uh, the, and they, but they also like, you know, they, they, they just carved these bases out wherever they wanted. And they just, all the people that were living there, they just threw them off the land. Some of them were even like put on boats and sent, sent to Brazil. Uh, it was a very oppressive imperial kind of policy and the Okinawan people, you know, suffered greatly, you know, obviously during during the war, and then then afterwards, and, you know, lost their land. And so you have what you have now are these, you know, the the, the biggest base under contention there uh, is is, uh, is a marine base, Futenma Marine Base. Air, it's an it's an air base from the U.S. Marines, and it's it's a major, you know, forward base for the U.S. Marines in Asia. And that base is like right in the middle of a major city. You know, you know the, the, the city goes right up to the edge and they, you know, fly planes all the time. And, and there's, you know, there's been all kinds of accidents. Um, and uh, for years, the people of Okinawa have wanted the, the, the Marines out and wanted this base closed. And so there was, you know, there was American soldiers, you know, assaulted and raped you know, Okinawan women, and this caused a big furor within U.S.-Japan relations in the 90s. And uh, so there was some movement, you know, the Japanese government was trying to negotiate 
a way to reduce what they call, you know, the footprint of, of the U.S. Marines there. Um, and um, so there was some, you know, negotiations, protracted negotiations between the U.S. and Japan on this. Uh, and you know what eventually happened was there there was a there was a Japan practically the only progressive government that's existed in Japan since the end of World War II, uh, which is party that's no longer in existence. Uh, it was called the, you know, the, 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 the Democratic Party of Japan. And its leaders were elected uh, in, in the 1990s, early 1990s on a platform to get the Marines out of Okinawa and to uh, also change the close changed some of the rules of the US-Japan military alliance. Like for example, for years after the war, after Japan, Japanese cities were nuked by the, you know, the US attack with nuclear weapons, uh, you know, the Japan policy, Japanese government officially had this policy of you know, no entry of nuclear weapons into Japan. But the US didn't care about that. And for years with the connivance, with the, with the cooperation of this, so-called liberal democratic party government. The US you know, brought nuclear weapons in and out of Japan on their ships and planes for years. And uh, the, you know, this finally came out in the 1980s, uh, former US ambassador revealed that this had been going on. And so you know, there was a lot of pressure to sort of change you know, the US military alliance structure and, and to give Japan more during this time of, of uh, you know, liberal rule actual liberal <laughs> progressive government, uh, they wanted to kind of rewrite the rules of the US-Japan military alliance and give Japan you know, more, of a, more of a say in, 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 the, in this structure of this, this alliance, this powerful military alliance. And uh, the US uh, really put pressure on this progressive government. In fact, it was the Obama administration that really cracked down on, on them. And, and uh, you know, went there and said, you, you know, you basically, you can't do this. You know, if, if you do this, you will weaken our military stance against, against uh, China. And uh, they forced one prime minister out and then the other one came in uh, and they, they kind of, the US kind of forced this deal down that, that government's throat that uh, yes, they would eventually close this Futenma Marine Air Base, but uh, because the U.S. still needed a forward base in Okinawa, the Japanese government agreed to build a new uh, military air base for the Marines in the northern part of the island in this place called Hennepal, which is on this very environmentally uh, sensitive area. And uh, so, you know, all of these... It, all of these issues came together, and uh, the, the, the uh, people in the island have been, you know, outraged. Uh, Okin Okinawa is actually a series of islands, but there's one large island. Uh, and you know, from the governor, the governor now uh, is, you know, you know, wants the Marines out. The people have voted in in plebiscites, you know, to to you know have the Japanese government request the Marines leave. Um, but the Japanese government never, you know, pays attention. The LDP, the ruling, the, the current ruling party, came into power after these progressives were pushed out, and you know, and you know, and they they they've been saying, okay, we'll build this Hanako base, 
Protests are still going on every day as we speak. There's people there that 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 uh, protest on land and they take out, they ride out in you know little boats um, and and protest protest the base. But it's being built, and but it's going to take years to to still finish. And so it's just you know the U.S. still maintains its bases. What's important to understand about these bases is that Futenma itself. Um, and I got this from a former Secretary of Defense who laid it out in a speech a few years ago, um, William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's uh, Secretary of Defense. And he had planned for, you know, he, as Secretary of Defense, the US almost went to war with North Korea in 1994, right? And um, so he knew, he knows what all the forces, how the forces are arrayed in Japan and Okinawa and how they would, US forces in, in Japan would be arrayed during the Korean War. And uh, so, you know, according to him, according to him uh, Futenma is basically there as uh, a, it would be a base in, in case there's a war in Korea and North Korea ever crosses the DMZ again and, 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 and tries to invade South Korea, the Futenma Air Base Marines would be would be the first ones to get to Korea and stop a North Korean invasion. That is almost the sole reason for having them there. Of course, they've, these Marines have taken part in operations in Iraq and other places, but their primary reason for being there is to be there in a war against Korea, war against North Korea, and to stop a North Korean invasion before the North Koreans get to get to Seoul. Uh, and so. You know, his point at the time, this was, he made the speech shortly after uh, Trump's, President Trump first met, you know, Kim Jong-un and there was, or he had agreed to meet with him at that point. And there was a lot of talk about how the Korean, Korean situation, the standoff with North Korea by nuclear weapons could be resolved. And, you know, it, it's clear that if there was a peace agreement in, in Korea and there was no more war at the end of the Korean war, and, and that was out of the question anymore that the, the, this Futenma base wouldn't need to be there at all. Uh, so it's all tied into the, you know, to the regional uh, framework. And now these bases in Okinawa, I mean, they're, they're also a major uh, base for US spy planes, surveillance planes. So you'll, if you read, anytime you see an article about, you know, US spy planes are flying over the Korean peninsula, inevitably they're from Okinawa. And uh, every once in a while, surveillance planes come in from Guam, but Okinawa is, you know, right there, just a few minutes, you know, airtime from, from the Korean Peninsula. So uh, the other thing to, that's important to know about U.S. forces in Japan and is in connection to Korea is that, you know, the, uh, the, the U.S. fought in Korea under this fig leaf of a U.N. command, right, United Nations command. So the current U.S. commander in Korea of U.S. forces Korea is also the commander of the U.N. command, right? There is something called U.N. command rear. And what that is, is all the U.S. bases in Japan are part of the, the uh, U.N. command in Korea rear base. And, what, and so like it's, it's, it's stationed at Yokota Air Base near Tokyo. And, and several of the bases and U.S. bases in Okinawa are also part of this rear, U.N. command rear. And I, I just learned this actually a couple of years ago 
I did not know that there was UN flags flying at these US bases in, in Okinawa, as well as Yokota and a couple of the other bases in US bases in Japan. But they're all part of this structure that would be used and utilized if there's another Korean War. You know, so the whole military structure there is oriented around, uh, you know, you know, another war, if having to be there in, in case of a war in Korea, and and so that's why you know you know peace talks are so important because it could not only end the war in Korea, uh, end the Korean War after you know seventy some years, but it could also you know create a, a way for the U.S. to if we were in the right frame of mind and people you know, understood this, a way for to reduce the US military forces in Japan. But you know, the way our policy is going now, it's moving in the complete opposite direction. And in fact, the US under, you know, recently, uh, Blinken and Biden have proposed uh, stationing you know, uh, inter intermediate US missiles what they call the island chains of the Pacific, and these base they, they want to and they want to put these missiles in Okinawa for one place, and other other islands in the Pacific that the U.S. you know has control of or access to, and so they actually want to remilitarize the whole area, and so Okinawa could be you know under another uh, threat because you know what when 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 you know Okinawa's the people are placed, these bases are there, obviously they're, you know, when North Korea fires, fires a missile, like they did the other day, or tests a missile, um, they're, they're testing what they call their air defenses, and these missiles are designed to hit U.S. bases in not only South Korea, but in Japan and Guam as well, so, that, you know, they're, they're like, they're not ICBMs where they would travel to North America, but they're their defensive missiles, uh, and you know, could be offensive missiles if if, there, if there's a war. But you know, that's what they're that's what they test them for because that's their that's they they feel they're surrounded by the U.S., Japan, and South Korean military. So uh, that's why, in my mind, you know, movement toward peace in in Korea and getting you know uh, talks to. Uh, you know, end this nuclear crisis and to help South and North Korea defuse their tensions is so important because, you know, it's, it's one way toward reducing this enormous U.S. military presence in East Asia. Mm -hmm. And uh, that transitions perfectly to another thing I wanted to cover, uh, which is that, of course, we hear in the U.S. Uh, a lot of this I would say fear-mongering over North Korea, uh, over their uh, nuclear program. You touched on a little bit how that developed, why they're concerned about the U.S. presence, but can you, from what you know about uh, both people in South Korea, the government, as well as citizens, uh, and North Korea, what are their perspectives on um, both the U.S.'s role in the region, as well as uh, the potential for uh, an end to the war. Well, I think the you know the Korean government, the current government of Moon Jae-in was you know instrumental in getting the uh, getting talks and negotiations going with North Korea again after you know some years back in 2018. 
Uh, it almost seems ancient now, but you know, three years ago, things looked very hopeful, and there were there were, you know, as when when the, the Olympics Winter Olympics were held in South Korea uh, in 2018, Moon Jae-in used that as an opportunity to invite, you know, uh, well, they invited the North Koreans to participate in the games, which they did, and then they invited, you know senior leadership and the, you know, this was the highest level visit of North Korean officials to South Korea since the end of the Korean War is very significant. And, uh, you know, as people may recall that, you know, Vice President Pence at the time was also at the Olympics and there's these famous pictures of him, you know, sitting like two feet away from Kim Yo-jong who is Kim Jong-un's sister, right? She was there, but, you know, Pence made sure there was no contact between him and the North Koreans. But as a result of, you know, Moon's outreach, President Moon's outreach, and then he had a summit, his own summit meeting to begin with, with Kim Jong-un uh, in March of 2018. And then they had another one later, later in the year. Uh, you know, they, they decided on a whole series of steps to deescalate the military situation. And as a result of their meetings, that's when it became known, you know, Kim Jong-un said, I'd be willing to meet the US president. And, you know, Moon sent his representatives to the White House and they raised the idea with Trump and he agreed to it. The only good thing he's ever done in my, in my view, uh, the only positive thing he did in, in many, many lists of horrible things Trump did. But, you know, that was, that was, that, that kind of, you know, unlocked the jam kind of, it, it, it kind of, broke open the log jam that existed for many years. But unfortunately, you know, uh, Trump wouldn't really give on the issue of sanctions. And, and, and so and when you're asking about South Korea, I mean, like the Moon government, Moon, Moon Jae-in was elected president in 2017. He ran on a platform to resume the sunshine policies of his progressive predecessors in the late 90s early 2000s. Kim Dae-jung, who was a famous opposition figure and who was almost murdered, almost killed several times by the Korean CIA. You know, he was elected president in the late 1990s and he started the sunshine policy. He was the first Korean, South Korean president to have a summit meeting with uh, the North Korean leader who at that time was Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's father. And then no, no Moo-hyun, who was his predecessor carried this forward and until 2007, you know, relations between North and South Korea, you know, were actually, you know, became quite good. And, you know, people were actually, North South Koreans were traveling to North Korea and vice versa. And then, you know, um, President Bush, uh, when he came into office, uh, he, he didn't, he, he made it very clear, he did not believe in negotiating with North Korea. Uh, and so things started coming apart as far as, you know, the U.S. relationship with North Korea, because under Clinton, there had been a, uh, an agreement for them to shut down their nuclear program in return for basically normalization with the U.S. And that process was actually quite un was underway when Bush took over in 2001. And, he's, and he said, you know, he doesn't trust North Korea, won't negotiate anymore. And things went sour from there and, 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 and was actually within a few years of Bush putting North Korea on the axis of evil list that they actually exploded their first atomic weapon. 
and and so you know a lot of people in South Korea led by this sort of progressive opposition, but even people in, in some of the, you know, the conservatives knew that, you know, uh, that, you know, they want to have a, a, some kind of, you know, peace and unification with North Korea, it, you know, in some form, unification in some form. So, you know, people would like to see that as, you know, as Koreans who people have, well, they're old now, but, you know, everybody has family on the other side of the border and both sides of the border. And so, you know, it's, you know, they are one country. It used to be one country. So, um, but, you know, in terms of like, it's really the, what South Koreans think about, uh, you know, the U.S. military and South Korea as a base for the U.S. military, it, it, it's hard to generalize, but, you know, in, in, you know, in the, in, in, 80s and 90s, there was a lot of hostility toward U.S. policy, and, and it's kind of calmed down since then and around the bases, especially because the U.S. Uh, starting in, well, first of all, in 1991, the U.S. withdrew its, its own nuclear weapons from South Korea. And, and uh, also in the last 10 or 15 years, the US, U.S. used to have all these bases around the DMZ uh, close to North Korea, right? They were there specifically, like the 7th, 2nd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army was stationed there specifically as kind of a tripwire. In case there was a, in case North Korea crossed, the U.S. would automatically be involved in a war. Uh, and so those bases have largely been consolidated down a little bit south of Seoul into this massive U.S. military base called Camp Humphreys, which is now the largest U.S. military base outside of the United States. It's a massive, massive base. And because the, the, the bases are not sort of, you know, are, are, are sort of down there and not all over, you know, near the border, and there's less of a, even, even the large base in Seoul, that was the headquarters of the U.S. Army for years, which they took over from the Japanese military in 1945. Uh, even that base has been, you know, shut down, uh, and and so there's less of a presence of U.S. military. And so I think people, you know, they, they take polls, and you know, 60% or so always say they support the U.S. military, the alliance with the U.S. Um, but there's, you know, you get beyond that and there's a lot of questions people have, you know, like one, you know, how long is there gonna be troops there, right? It's just gonna be forever. Uh, and then, you know, lately uh, people in the, what I would call, you know, Moon, the progressive camp, uh, uh, people around President Moon, his advisors, uh, they, they begin to ask questions like, you know, well, we, you know, we needed this alliance with the US you know, during and after the Korean War. So Korea, South Korea, we could be safe from any more invasion from North Korea. And, but, you know, years and years, decades later, maybe that, you know, we don't have to be in this, such a tight military relationship anymore. Maybe we could have another kind of relationship. And um, so I think, you know, people are looking more like long-term, you know, like, okay, so, why are these troops here? And, you know, we have, a, South Korea itself has a massive military, far more powerful than North Koreans. 
and you know they have missile they have they have you know very advanced you know missiles um that they've you know partly you know u.s technology but partly their own and um you know so they they have they have a military that could you know in in, in my view and a lot of koreans view could easily defend themselves against north korea now they don't have nuclear weapons um you know the u.s made darn sure that South Korea did not develop nuclear weapons in the 70s. They have a huge nuclear industry, right? Nuclear power industry. Um, so I think, I think I would say that the feelings in South Korea are kind of ambiguous about it. I mean, some people, you know, really support the US presence and other people do not. But I mean, uh, it's, it's more of a question of, you know, what's, what's come up in the last couple of years is the question around sovereignty of South Korea. Uh, for example, one of the little known things about South Korea and the US is that the joint, you know, there's a, there's a joint command, there's a joint US South Korean command. That command during wartime is headed by a US general. So if, if, if South Korea goes to war with North Korea, a US general would run, would be in charge of the Korean military, South Korean military. Very, very unusual situation. And the last, so like South Korea under Moon has been pressing to give South Korea operational control of its military. And this has become a source of tension with the Pentagon and even, you know, with, with, with the incoming Biden administration, because a lot of people in the Pentagon want to keep US operational control. And, and so I think the, the issues are more, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, kind of a more hidden debate there. It's not like some places in, in the world where there's been, you know, um, you know, you know, lots of anger. At, I mean, there is a lot of sort of, you know, deep anger about the U.S. role there, but there's also, it, it's a complex situation. It's, it's very hard to generalize, but I think, you know, in terms of like its own national, their sense of national, national, sense of identity, uh, there's a certain kind of, of, of shame and a certain kind of like, you know, you know people wanting, wanting a kind of basic change in the relationship. And I think that's something that never gets explained here in the US media hardly at all. It's just South Korea, in fact, is hardly even mentioned, you know, in, in, in policy debates. I mean, you know, Biden's press conference the other day, Talked about North Korea. He talked about Japan, is its alliance with Japan, India, Australia. Not one mention of South Korea. It's like it's like, you know, South Korea is just a bit player that just does what the U.S. the U.S. does, and there's no, uh, you know, it, it wasn't even worth, you know, like like Biden could have said, well, you know, this is a complex situation. You know, South Korea, North Korea have been talking for years. They would like to have some kind of peace and there's a peace process has been going on and many South Koreans support it and we should support, you know, what the Korean people want, you know, but instead it's just like South Korea doesn't exist. And it's just, you know, you know, the threat is always US versus North Korea. That's, that's how it's, it's always posed. And anything North Korea does is a provocation. Yes, it may violate the UN sanctions and, you, you know, international law with ballistic missiles, but, uh, you know, as I've often said, like, you know, if you want to go back to the roots of the nuclear crisis in Korea, 
Who was the first to introduce nuclear weapons? It certainly was not North Korea. You know, the US brought nuclear weapons into South Korea in 1958. So, you know, and there's a, a re, one of the last books that Daniel Ellsberg wrote, uh, he, you know, when he was at Rand Corporation, uh, Ellsberg uh, was sent to uh, around the world, but he spent a lot of time in Northeast Asia. He, he was sent out by Rand to sort of analyze the US nuclear force in Asia, right? And what he found was, you know, in Japan and Korea, uh, you know, there's all kinds of nuclear weapons on planes and ships, and, you know, especially on planes. And the local commanders had authority to use them if they lost communication with, with the Pentagon, right? So local commanders actually had command and control of their own nuclear weapons and could have used them, you know, if there, if there had been, you know, a, 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 and that's what's so dangerous about that situation, you know, and always has been. And, and now the U.S. nuclear weapons are withdrawn, but, you know, the U.S. has nuclear weapons on ships and submarines based in Japan and, you know, has, you know, nuclear weapons on planes that fly out of Guam. So it's surrounded by, you know, nuclear in North Korea is by nuclear force, the U.S. nuclear force. And that's the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, when people, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, what, are the, what do the North Koreans mean by denuclearization in the last couple of weeks? The U.S. has only used the term in the, in the previous negotiations. It was always the word, the term accepted by both sides was denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And North Korea likes that term because they, it refers to the U.S. nuclear force in East, East Asia that's linked in with the South Korean military, right? Uh, and, and, you know, U.S., all the think tanks here, and they all ridicule that and say, you know, it's just uh, uh, foolish and they're just trying to, you know, they're, they're just trying to throw the attention away from the fact that they have nuclear weapons uh, and, and they, they don't want it to say denuclearization in North Korea, but to North Korea, that's their defense against this massive military structure uh, the U.S. has arrayed against them. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we wrap, I kind of want to bring the conversation full circle uh, because you wrote in Responsible Statecraft uh, an article about how the appointment of Antony Blinken as Secretary of State, as well as Avril Haines uh, as Intelligence Director, um, signals da dangerous policy. Um, you, you wrote about their role uh, shaping some problems with East Asia policy within the Obama administration. Uh, right. Hasn't a lot of stuff we touched on, but just can you get into sort of the specifics of them and what it could carry over that uh, people paying attention should keep their eye out for? Well, you know, people, you know, Trump used to say, you know, when his meeting with, the first time he met Obama, uh, when, when uh, he became president, Obama warned him that, you know, North Korea was the most dangerous you know, foreign policy issue facing him. And, and then Biden was asked the same question the other day. And he said, he, he had, his answer was, yes, it is the most dangerous policy issue I, I face in the world. Um, and, but under, you know, under Obama, I mean, Bush really screwed up the situation in, in with, with North Korea, as I'd said before. Um, but towards the end of the Bush administration, he, they were, they opened talks with North Korea, 
And there was talks that went on. They were called the six-party talks. They also involved they also involved other countries in the region, such as China and Japan and Russia. Um, um, and so Bush was was you know open open the door a little bit to negotiations. But Obama, uh, you know, when after he first came to office, uh, the North Koreans tested a uh, well. They fired a uh, a rocket to launch a satellite, and you know technically it violated. Uh, you know, UN rules on, on, on ballistic missiles. But in fact, they did try to launch a satellite. In fact, at one point they did, they did launch a satellite and they said that's their right as a, you know, civilian, uh, you know, civilian program. It's their right to have, you know, satellites. And uh, that immediately that, uh, you know, Obama had come to office saying he would talk to our enemies, including you know, Kim Jong-un and uh, that test uh, sort of, you know, initiate a policy where they became very hostile to any idea of negotiations. And then Obama's policies turned more toward, you know, covert warfare where, uh, you know, which has been reported, you know, began to be reported by the New York Times, uh, uh, you know, this, 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 this uh, basically, you know, using, uh, uh, you know, computer systems to go, you know, go and go into, uh, go into the North Korean uh, systems and their missile systems to screw up the missiles. And so they carried on this kind of covert war, uh, electronic war uh, and, and uh, intelligence war and, and, you know, really refused many offers by North Korea to talk. And just, you know, just, I mean, I look back at some of the articles I wrote even during Obama, where there was different, you know, American delegations went to North Korea and the North Koreans said, well, you know, we'd be willing to put our, you know, send our weapons to a third country and we'd be willing to put some of our nuclear material and get, you know, as a way to begin talks, but it was all rejected by, by Obama and his team. And at the time, Blinken was, you know, he eventually became deputy, uh, nat, you know, national security advisor. And Avril Haines was the director of a deputy director of the CIA. And the CIA, of course, was sort of running this covert war to begin with. And one of the things that really shocked me about Avril Haines when I started looking into her record over the last few years was, you know, just finding uh, speeches she had given at Brookings and other places saying that, you know, in case of a war with, they, they basically, they, they wanted North Korea to collapse and they thought it would collapse. And they thought there's no point in having deep negotiations with them because it's eventually going to go away and then South Korea will take over. So I believe you referred to it as um, strategic patience. Strategic patience, right. Just, you know, no reason to do anything. They're going to collapse. They're weak. They'll go away. And obviously <laughs> that didn't happen. But, you know, you know, I found this one speech that I wrote about in uh, responsible statecraft that where she was talking about where Avril Haines was talking about, you know, in case of a war, in case in case of a war with North Korea and the U.S. would send, you know, forces into, you know, get, you know, uh, get control of their nuclear weapons. And she was actually talking, you know, there, there could be, you know, uh, we would collaborate with our allies, you know, and she named Japan. Uh, and China as, as both countries that could be involved militarily in something like that. And the fact that someone would think, uh, someone, a senior intelligence official 
would think that it was fine and good to have Japanese military involved again in the Korean Peninsula, to me, just shows me, uh, showed to me, uh, you know, what, you know what, what a loser she is. I mean, th th she had no respect at all for the past of what Korea has gone through, you know, with Japan. Uh, and the fact that she would think that would be all right just shows you that they don't understand Korea at all. They don't understand this history and they either don't understand it, they don't care and, um, or both, you know? And, 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 and so, uh, you know, like as I've been writing recently and I, I'm gonna do some more on this, you know, Biden's policy is like, Japan is our foremost ally there. And it's been the same way since the end of World War II. I mean, the US, you know, after the Korean War, but even before the Korean War, they began trying to find ways to get Japan back into Korea, to South Korea, to back up its economy and build its economy as a way when the US was shifting its military forces to the Vietnam, you know, Japan stepped in as, as a Japanese Marxist um, friend of mine explained to me years ago, he's the leader of the Japanese anti-war movement, you know, the U.S. supplied the military structure of imperialism in Asia. Japan supplied the economic backbone of U.S. imperialism, right? Supporting South Korea, supporting Indonesia after the coup, supporting, you know, the Philippines, Thailand, all these countries that were part of this anti-communist Cold War alliance, you know. And Japan, you know, like Biden constantly talks about, you know, who, who does he say? When we can talk about the, you know, any kind of negotiations with Korea, always Japan has to be involved. Japan always gets a seat at the table. Japan is always the first one when there would be a crisis and another crisis with North Korea, who would be the first prime minister, the first leader Trump would call, you know, it'd be Abe of Japan. And it's the same now. And, and so they just, they, they see the US and Japan and they, as you know, key alliance and then they see south korea is like the subordinate alliance and they and the and south korea should basically follow the u.s and japan and that's still the policy and it's just it's that goes against this kind of you know all these questions that have been raised in south korea um you know that's why there's so much tension at the basis of the u.s rok alliance and you can read it it's very, you know, like now there's this whole dispute around, you know, Korean citizens who sue Japanese corporations that were responsible for slave labor and comfort women in Japan. You know, this, this legal case is the source of a major dispute between South Korea and Japan. And the U.S. is always saying, oh, come on, you know, Korea, get, get on the program and, you know, let's stop this bickering. And they treat them like little children, basically. They want to result, they want them to forget the past because they want to have this grand alliance. And I think it's uh, not going to work. And I think it's going to create deeper fissures and, you know, for trying to force South Korea into this alliance against China is, you know, it, it's just, it's just going to backfire in my view. Well, I really appreciate you covering this so extensively. I know I've, I've learned a lot about the region and policy from your writing. I hope our listeners will learn more. And if any of them are interested in keeping tabs on things, how can they follow your work? Probably the best way is on Twitter at, you know, uh, Timothy S. 
at Timothy S on Twitter. And you know, I have a I have a website, timsharock.com, which isn't really updated that much, but I have a lot of documentation on there uh, from all my previous work. Uh, so, but I'd say, you know, follow me on Twitter because it's, you know, I, I, I post a lot of, you know, new material on Korea every day and get engaged with people that are, you know, talking about Japan and Korea. So um, that's probably, that's probably, that's probably the best way. You know, I, I will be, I've been taking a little break, uh, but I'll be back writing for uh, the nation and other publications, uh, so, you know, soon. So. Right. Well, Tim Short, thank you so much again for coming on News Dive. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Now let me know. Let me know when it's up. Absolutely. All right.